Uh, you know, again, I said it on Jay. I'm not exactly who I'm going to be. I'm not yet where I want to be, but thank you, God, I'm not the person I used to be. And probably a dozen spiritual brothers and sisters came over to me in that moment, and they hugged me. They told me they're going to love me before I ever know how to love myself. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the podcast in partnership with the awesome Najahi Events and Vault Hill, our new sponsors. More about those great companies later. Right. We come to Hollywood, you've got to meet an agent, haven't you? You've got to meet one of these agents to the stars. What about Magic Johnson's agent? Would that be a good start? He's probably one of those legendary sports people that exists out there. Our guest today is Darren Prince. He's an agent. He's been mega successful, but he has a really painful story to share with you all. To learn about his addictions to drugs from a very, very young age really shook me and i hope that you when listening to this episode will feel the journey that he's been on and his recovery and what he's gone on to do to help other people not suffer in the way that he did cue the music for the awesome darren prince Vault Hill is the world's first human-centric metaverse that's opened its doors for brands and entities to launch their presence in the metaverse in only 48 hours. This is the fastest activation ever and the first time ever any metaverse has offered this. Upon this activation process, brands will receive free virtual land in Vault Hill City and can give life to their metaverse presence by buying buildings in the Vault Hill marketplace and deploy it on their dedicated V-Land. Then brands can customize their land using unbounded creativity. They can display their own NFTs or upload different media, logos, or digital creations to start to capitalize from their digital assets. Go check out vaulthill.io. And lastly, thank you to Najahi Events, who have been sponsoring us now on the podcast for over a year. Najahi bring motivational speakers to the region to help inspire, educate, and motivate you to achieve better success and live a better life. Darren, thank you so much for coming to join us on the podcast today. I really appreciate you giving us your time. I'm probably going to dig into some areas that, that, that for our viewers and our listeners might be a little bit sensitive, but I really want to talk about areas that I really care about. And one of the areas I've heard a lot about your story is relating to mental health challenges that you've had. But let's give everyone some perspective and understand your background, understand where you came from and some challenges you faced when you were younger and then how that worked for you in business. Because there are so many similarities in some, some of my journey to mm -hmm. some of yours too. So take it away. Where do we start? How old were you when you kind of like started to realize that maybe, maybe you were a little bit different or your family environment was a bit different than normal? Tell me about that. So I was uh, eight years old. I was always in these special education classrooms, and we went to our first family therapist meeting. And uh, she asked me why I was there, a woman by the name of Rhoda Gold. Uh, she's gone now. And um, my answer was, because I'm stupid. And she goes, oh, honey, you don't believe that. And I said, yeah. I said, I'm dumb. I'm in these small classrooms, and my friends make fun of me. And... Um, you know, I knew then that something just wasn't right with my thought process. I always felt very different, insecure, not comfortable with my own skin. Always told that a learning disability. And um, besides all that, I still managed to become a success at a very young age, at the age of 14. So let's just talk about that for a minute, because I remember we're exactly the same age. So we, even though different countries, I'm sure methods and processes and remedies were probably very similar at our age, mm -hmm. even though it's different parts of the world. 
I remember at school there were the there were the smart kids that were let's say in class A, and then there was the kind of okay kids at class B, average kids in class C, and then we had D and E. And if you're in any subjects where you're in D and E, he used to get shit you know you used to get picked on or used to get bullied a bit because you were a bit thick and mm -hmm. you know and, and and for me chemistry was something physics i wasn't oh, any good at so i was right, right i was in the, i was in the bottom classes for that <laughs> <laughs> foreign languages okay it's good you say that was that the experience or was it worse for you well i think there was crippling anxiety when it was something i didn't feel comfortable learning about which wasn't much but i think there was a lot of verbal teasing that was mm -hmm. going on too i wasn't physically bullied but certainly verbally and um you know i remember one time leaving a classroom maybe i was 12 13 and uh, some guy goes hey there goes one of the idiots and i went to go to the bathroom and i turn around i look left and i look right and i spin all the way around and i'm the only one in the hallway and took me everything, everything in me not to cry when I walked into the bathroom because you know, I was like, how's this happening? I'm nice to everybody. I'm friendly to everybody. I feel like I have friends and this guy's calling me an idiot. And you know, my mistake, which is why I'm so passionate when I speak around the world now, especially kids, is I didn't speak up. I took it home with me and made it like everything was okay to my mom and dad. And I never told the teachers. I never told other friends. I didn't tell the guidance counselors which eventually, when I look back, I think I was a prime candidate to fall victim to drug addiction because of that. But were we, when we were that age, were we even, did we even think it was normal or possible to have those conversations? Because physical bullying, obviously you walk home and you've got a black eye or right. a cut on your nose or your lip, your mum will jump on you and she'll be like, what's happened, what's happened? Yeah. I'm gonna get down that school and I'm gonna have words. Right. But when it was psychological, it's like, if you go and you tell somebody, you're telling tales. Right. And uh, do, does that resonate yeah, with you? No, there was anxiety over that too. Then they called the teacher. Then he's got 10 friends that are making fun of me and bullying me. And again, I just, uh, you know, I think I just took it, you know, to bed every single night and, and acted like this happy-go-lucky kid that everybody would have thought from the outside was just perfectly normal. And I wasn't. Now, in America, you do something different in your summer holidays to what we do because you guys go to camp. Mm -hmm. And in the UK, we didn't. We'd have six weeks off and you'd be dragged around where mum and dad were going on vacation yeah. or mm -hmm. you'd be around the house and in the neighborhood kind of mm -hmm. thing, kicking around. A couple of jumpers, a football, and uh, we've, that would be what was happening right. in the street. And you'll know this, you know, your mum would call you in when it got dark. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But, but in America, you go to camp. Yep. Okay. So tell me about what happened on that journey for you. So I was 14. I went to sleepaway camp and, you know, I love telling this story because it still feels so raw to this day. And I think it was like the second night there, I just had terrible stomach pains. I, I don't know what was going on. And the counselor took me to see the nurse and her name was Greta. I remember like yesterday and she gave me this clear cough syrup cup with this green liquid in it. And, oh, it just, it, it made me cringe, but the most amazing sensation happened walking across the softball field back to the bunk. That green liquid, um, I feel, introduced me to people because I felt like Superman. Something was happening where I felt alive, I felt comfortable, I felt confident, I felt smart. I got back to the bunk and I'm the cool popular kid now. Everybody's laughing with me, not at me. Uh, I got the courage for the first time. I you know, walked out the front door to the bunk next to me and it was a whole group of girls. And I realized that that green liquid introduced Darren Prince to everybody. And I needed more of it, whatever it was, I had no idea. And I woke up the next morning, you know, we play soccer, 
guys call football or whatever mm. and softball and tennis and we go swimming we're doing all the activities and that very next night i'm lying in the bunk bed and i'm just staring at the sky thinking to myself god that feeling was amazing what was that and at 14 years old i learned how to lie and i learned how to con and i healed over and acted like the stomach pains were so severe to see how the council would react and he took me right back to the infirmary and I did this for three straight weeks every night until my mom and dad came up for visitation day and found that I was taking liquid Demerol. Uh, for the benefit of the people in the Middle East, what's liquid Demerol? Demerol is a, uh, probably I'd say a class A narcotic um, opiate, very, very strong opiate that is given to people that have, you know, extremely you know, um, physical pain issues. Um, if you're in a hospital, it's given. Uh, like a morphine sure, type thing, yeah. yeah, it's a, it's similar like a morphine. And um, back then, you're talking 1984, the opiate epidemic wasn't really mm -hmm. a thing, you know. And um, for people listening, you know, don't blame the nurse. And I say this when I speak all the time. Like, it wasn't her fault because three months later, I had two wisdom teeth get taken out of the dentist appointment. I was back from camp. I knew I wasn't getting in more of that liquid. But my mom gave me these two white pills. Mm -hmm. comes up to my bedroom, I take the pills, and man, within 30 minutes, that feeling came alive again. I'm on the phone, I'm calling up everybody I know. I just started a baseball card business, so now I was like this young entrepreneur that was starting to make a little bit of money, and I have all the ideas. Everybody you know, is just mesmerized with the things that I'm telling them, and I'm this young visionary all of a sudden, the, sm the, the dumb kid and the smart uh, is now the smart kid. Um, and this went on for you know another day. I'm taking two pills every few hours, and I went down that second night and saw that my mind had only two white pills left in this bottle. And um, I read what was on there. It said Vicodin. And Vicodin eventually became one of the three opiates that I became addicted to. And that next morning, I did the exact same thing to my mother. I came down and grabbed my cheek. I said, Mom, my tooth is killing me. I have a horrible infection. I know we have to go back to the dentist. And, oh, my God, you know, I'm so sorry. Let me call the dentist. What mother wants to see their child suffer? Mm. And I had to put in the same crocodile tears for the dentist the next day. And um, as I say, he took the bait, too, and wrote another prescription for whatever it was, 15, 20 more Vicodins. So... Were you by then, do you think, addicted at that point? Or were you just at the beginning of that addiction journey? I, I, I don't think I was addicted. And you, nobody was telling me I was addicted either. Nobody was going to tell a kid that started to make a few bucks at 14 years old that I'm addicted. I knew what that made me feel like. So nobody was telling me after a couple of experiments, oh, you're going to get addicted or this isn't good. Like You're putting something into my system that makes me feel like Superman every single time and took away all the inadequacies, all the insecurities, all the feeling of lesson immediately within five minutes. You're not telling a 14-year-old kid that, you know, you have a problem. And uh, so, no, you know, I just eventually started, like I said, I started making substantial money uh, with this baseball card business. I know around the world, in the Middle East, they must know some other collectible cards. Yeah, yeah, people know about collectible cards. Yeah. Tremendous value and they become a highly more sought after and collectible, similar to Pokemon cards. Yeah. Um, and um, now at 16 years old, I'm making a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. And I'm wow. newspapers. There was no internet back then. And in the biggest newspapers in America, I'm doing TV show interviews. I'm, uh, like I said, the smart 
uh, the, the, the dumb, stupid kid is now all of a sudden, you know, uh, becoming a national name as a very successful young entrepreneur. So whatever drugs I needed to get, I got them, you know, super easy. And my parents just really had no control uh, because I'd be on the road doing conventions and whatever I had to do, making my own money. And like I said, there was no internet back then, but I could always find what I needed from somebody. Wow. So that at 16 you're it's 1986. So you're, you're, you're still at school. I'm at my junior in high school. So you're still at school. You're accessing these drugs. You're making cash. So you're getting the attention of the girls. I'm sure. I, I was, it wasn't a priority until probably I was 18. Okay. I really didn't pay much attention to but that. You, but you're also getting some, some acceptance from the people that didn't yeah. support you before and so that the made... ones that called me put it this way the ones that were calling me dumb and stupid on the weekends they were calling me boss because they were working for do you me. remember their names <laughs> well i think one was david but not not for any of my friends if you're listening to different david and um there, there was a jason and uh, it, it was kind of like a great way of payback because <laughs> Here they are, you know, getting $50 a week for allowance and I'm paying everybody twice that to come with me at conventions and act like my sales reps. And, um, it was nice that, yeah, I was the dumb, stupid one. And now they're, they have to call me boss on the weekend. It really resonates with me. The reason I asked you, I asked you their names is I know the names. Mm. I know the names of the people, Paul Fowler and Justin Zimmerman. Amazing. And I know them and they played a massive role in my first 15 years in business. Mm. They, those individuals, two people that bullied me quite badly at school, they played a role in my success. I was trying to prove to them, yeah. okay, that I was better than them. I could do more than them. I could be more than them, something more, you know, yeah. and every day. I wanted to find a way of shoving it down their throat in any way that I could. In a way, we should be thanking them because oh, I did the motivation so, they gave us. So that's why it's interesting. You know, yeah. I noticed your body language when I asked. It's yeah. the names. It's like David and Jason. It's yeah. like you went straight to that place, and yeah. you're like, I remember that. And then they called you boss, which is yeah. just <laughs> awesome. <laughs> and that time in your life, that boss, you got them running around for you. Yeah. That's just epic. So, did did the the success you had in business when you were younger with the baseball cards, did that satisfy of, or, or psychologically help you feel better about yourself and re require you to take the Vicodin less or was it in tandem? I think, um, I think there were periods where it made me feel better, but the truth of, if I wasn't on a convention for networking, schmoozing or on the phone, making deals, I felt like that kid in the back of the room if I wasn't taking drugs. I felt like that kid in the small classroom. So even the exterior success, long before I became an agent, um, I struggled with it with the baseball card business. And I, I was the one that, you know, there was fathers that were, I'd be at the diner in town at restaurants, everybody would be talking to me or talking about me in such a positive way. And nobody was making that type of money. My friends' parents weren't making that type of money. They were doctors. And um, so I, like I said on Jay Shed, he's a dear friend. Like I was like, you know, I needed it. I needed that validation. But 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 ultimately, you know, I, I still couldn't look myself in the mirror um and and have, you know, self-love. I needed the external sense because I'm still looking backwards. 
which you probably understand. Mm -hmm. Now I'm the one that's actually making it. This isn't smoke and mirrors anymore. I'm like the guy and I'm still looking backwards for everybody else that was making fun of me. So I never fully got to that point of understanding what real success meant internally and exteriorly. Did, did you become arrogant? Very. Obnoxious? Uh, yeah, there was moments the ego, you know, yeah. came into play and, um, you know, I, 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 I would say, you know, almost in a way of talking down to, but became about the expensive cars and the jewelry and the clothing and, you know, the most beautiful woman that I can have on my arm and all everything to look at this guy. Look what a rock star Darren Prince became. You know, look okay. at his life. I, oh I wouldn't, I wouldn't, that, okay, that's pretty normal. How did you treat other people? The, the, people, that were, the, the people that were near and dear to me. Well, I always tell you, even in my worst of, of the drug addiction days, I was always a good person. I always cared about taking care of people. Um, I took a lot of fake friends along for the ride, too. I still had arrogance and I was egotistical, but I wanted everybody to join in the party with me because I knew how much everybody was struggling when they were in college or couldn't find work. And it just made me happy to put 20 people on an airplane and go to Las Vegas for the weekend and pay for everything and make sure, you know, nobody had to spend a dollar um so i always had that kindness to me to want to pay it forward to to make others have good life experiences at a young age were you buying their love i was oh and their friendship 100 percent. yeah 100 percent. i was buying their love and their friendship 100 percent. yep and i didn't care it didn't matter because i felt like you know i always needed to prove again like it was almost like a power thing like you can't do this without me and I can't really travel by myself. So it's a win-win for everybody. Like the way you just positioned that I can't travel by myself. You can't do this without me. So it's a win-win, but deep down it's, I don't want to do this on my own. And there's an element of wanting to prove to them that you're the man as well. Isn't there? Yep. God, just story, different country different business, same story, hmm. which really I fascinates me. I can't believe I'm talking to a guy who's three months older than me that I've never met before. <laughs> and I'm listening to a story. As you're talking, I'm thinking of me. Yeah. All right. It's, it's really weird. Okay. That's amazing. So you do well with the baseball cards. Did you leave. Yeah. Did you go to college? One year, I dropped out my freshman year because the business became so big. Okay. I just couldn't focus. You were still doing baseball cards, making money doing that. Mm -hmm. How, of those people that you used to take to Vegas with you, how many of them are still in your life? Mm, I could probably, I'm one of those that can count my real friends on more than one hand. And I think a lot of people will tell you that. I probably legitimately have eight to 10 from back then. Yeah. From back then. But there was a lot more that were coming, you know, two thirds of them completely disappeared. Um, not because they wanted to, but eventually when we get to it, my journey to recovery, I just realized who were the people, places and things that I need to go to surround myself with and be at. And they weren't part of my journey. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to be careful how I word this. When, when men have sex, 
okay up until the moment they orgasm yeah. okay there's one sense of emotions and feelings yeah yeah the moment they orgasm then that all disappears my girlfriend nicolette i just had this conversation because she never understood it she's much younger she's 25 and we're all laughing she goes that's the weirdest thing i was like i don't know if you want to go shopping and do something get me before the sex because then after it it's just food and wanting to watch sports <laughs> <laughs> well but but there's a sense of, oh, God, my wife's going to kill me for talking about this. So there's a, there's a sense for me of like, w once that happens, I, I'm, I'm not interested in anything. So you said sports and want to lay on the sofa and, what, and eat food. Okay, you're very similar. But it's like that, that sense of desire to be alone. Yeah. Okay, in, in that moment. When you were with your your friends and you were doing these trips, and we'll take the Vegas example, once you'd done the trip, i.e. you've gone there on a Thursday, you get on the plane on the way home on a, on a Sunday night or a Monday morning, whenever mm -hmm. it is, and then you land at the airport or wherever it is you're going, what do you feel then? Do you feel, I've had a great weekend, it's been awesome, or do you feel very lonely? Very lonely and empty. Like I need to plan another one. I need to do it again which is very similar to a drug addict thinking. We were like here on Saturday night and Sunday night or Monday morning when we landed back into New Jersey on the red eye, it was a feeling, uh, you know, I gotta, I gotta keep doing this to have them be my friends too. You know? did, did anyone, this is one thing that used to bother me, did anyone offer when you used to do those trips, did anyone offer to buy you a beer? Uh, yeah, I, I had a, a handful and those are the majority of those kids, my friend, uh, I'll give them a shout at Andy Wayne, Dave Elwood, Mark Schachter. Um, yeah, they, they, they were the realest friends to this day. Never cared about the biggest stars on the planet and the celebrities I worked with. They just cared about me. Absolutely. And, and I would get into it. Yeah. But obviously when I found my new life, that, that meant more to them than anything. You know, when I started this new journey to recovery, those are real friends. Yeah, I'm glad you had those. Mm. So my, I had a girlfriend at the time, and she said to me one night when we were doing all this entertaining, she said, "Who um, who offered, who offered to buy you a beer tonight?" And I looked around and I was like, "What?" She's yeah, like, think about who, it. "Who's offered? Who offered to buy you a beer?" Yeah. And I was like, "No one." She's like, mm. "Yeah, I was lucky. I had a few of them." And then a few months later, she asked me the same question. And then a few months later, I asked all of the guys the question. You notice none of you have ever offered to buy me a beer. Mm -hmm. uh, I've, got, I've got the money. I don't need your beer, mm -hmm. you know, I'll, and I'll probably say no. Yeah. But you didn't even offer. Yeah. And so that, that always made me of feel course. like you're here for a reason that's a different reason to why I'm here. Yeah. I thought we were friends. Yeah. But actually, because of what you just said, I was buying their friendship, of course, but I'd sold myself on the idea that we were friends mm -hmm. rather than sitting there being truly honest with myself. Exactly. Going, Do you know what? I'm buying your friendship. Yep. <laughs> it's really, it's that's, that's fascinating. Cause not many people understand what you and I are talking about right now. We're like minorities and just have from two completely parts of the world, different parts. And there's such an identification with that is amazing. I hope that there's someone watching or listening this to this right now that is, 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 has been or is going through something similar yeah. that this is resonating with. 
because hopefully we can help them find a solution. Okay, so <clears throat> you you go into business. How do you transition from baseball cards into being an agent? I mean, you're an agent for all these mega. So, so, said, so just so before we started, yeah. you said, I "Hope this conversation is not all about all the famous people I was an and agent for." Okay, I get I get that completely. Yeah. Okay, yeah. we had a, a guy on the show the other day, and he invents um flying cars. Yeah, and he's like, "I'm just so glad you didn't mention the Jetsons." <laughs> I was like, I hadn't even thought about no, that. No, I get it. Like I said, I mean, I know people are fascinated. Does by that make it. you, does that make you, or did it make you a cooler person, a better person, a more interesting person, a more exotic, windswept and interesting person in the eyes of others because you were an agent to all these stars? A hundred percent. Absolutely. It's it just to me, like, you know, no matter what the podcast, interview, speaking engagement, yeah, I can go on there for an hour or two and talk. Everybody wants to hear the stories and how it happened. But, you know, recovery is about humility. And I've learned that. And I think it took a lot of work to get there, to know that, you know, in my own way, you know, through this journey, I've been touched by God, you know, and he gets that there's a fascination, but let me use that platform to get to what I really want to get to. So I eventually, after the baseball card business, I sold it. Um, I started getting into private autograph signings. And one name, most recognized man in the world, uh, Muhammad Ali, I got introduced to his agent. And he was the first celebrity I did an autograph signing with. And it was just this mind-blowing experience. We had all these boxing gloves and trunks and robes. And again, no internet back then. You'd run ads and different trade papers. And everything was sold within a couple months. And what I loved about it was talking about the insecurities and buying friendships. And I felt like my money was giving me access to now real people and you're talking the most famous human on earth muhammad ali and i could tell there was a genuineness about being with him that actually enjoyed me and my friends and so now it became even cooler because i'm booking these autograph signings and it went from him to chevy chase pamela anderson magic johnson um smoking joe frazier who i was with in england may he rest in peace um Eventually, that business, after a few years, I built that and, and sold it. And I had some, a little bit of some legal issues with selling. I talk about it in my book, Aiming High. Um, just got involved with the wrong person, really didn't know what he was doing, and he had a group of people that were selling me fraudulent autographs. I wasn't getting it in person. And it was like that moment in life that I can either crawl up on a ball or look at my body of work and say, you know what? I, I want to do something bigger. I want to really take advantage of a, of a bad situation. And my father, may he rest in peace, we were fishing in Alaska. I took him there with my last $3,000. I mean, I was really financially in a bad spot. And he didn't want to go. He didn't want me spending the money, but I insisted. And he said to me, what's your next move? Are you going to go back into the business? And I said, you know, Dad, I was reading. I want to be an agent. Like, I can do this. I just don't have eight years to go to law school. And we're in this gorgeous stream in Alaska with this tour guide. And he puts down his fishing pole. He's like, lawyer, where do you get that from? He goes, Darren, life is about who you know, not what you know. You've got relationships that any lawyer would do anything for. You know, you can go to Pamela's house in Mulholland Drive in California. You can go to Muhammad's Ranch in Berrien Springs or Joe Frazier's gym or go see Magic in Beverly Hills in his residency. Like utilize your relationships and tell your clients what you want to do. And, and I can't imagine they, they all wouldn't support you and start with magic. 
you know, he seems to always be the one that's, you know, the most marketable. Muhammad obviously had Parkinson's at that point. Mm -hmm. um, so I took my dad's advice and a few weeks later I was in Michigan and I call him Irvin, his real name uh, is Irvin Magic Johnson. The nickname is Magic. And we're in his hotel suite in Michigan. And it was almost like just a crazy coincidence because he said to me, how you doing? You getting back on your feet financially. I'm glad that all that stuff is behind you. Uh, you know, what, what are you going to do? Like, what, what do you think your next move is? And oh God, I clamped up. I felt like that 10 year old kid in the back of the classroom again. I'm like, oh, I can't even believe I got to ask him this. And I was like, you know, Irvin, I want to be an agent. I want to do the big stuff. Um, I want to do the endorsements, commercials. I really think I'd be good at it. And he goes, well, you know what? I love you and I love your family. You have any idea of who you want as a first client? And I'm like, shake. And I was like, y yo. Yo, and he said, um, I'm going to give you two years, but if you don't use me to knock down every door to bring in all the celebrities you can to build this agency, I'm going to fire you before the two years is up because it's not how successful I become. It's how successful I make you and everybody else around me because it's a domino effect to get back in life. And I, I, I was so blown away. Here I am, a 24 year old kid. And, um, He's more or less telling me to exploit him. Mm -hmm. But I understood it. And even a couple of weeks ago, we spoke. And I was just like, it's so amazing to him. Almost 30 years ago, I remember having this conversation with him. Because now he's, here you are, 2022, he's the most successful athlete businessman in the world. And uh, that's what I did. Then I started going to Chevy Chase, Joe Frazier, Pam, um, everybody right down the line. And started advertising, getting our name out there, going to networking events. But the drug addiction was right there with me. Because now how am I running with the biggest stars in the world? These aren't local Livingston, New Jersey people. These are the most recognized stars on mm, the planet. Huge brand. And Darren only knew one way to do it. And I had to be high on painkillers. So you were still taking Vicodin or something different? I was it? taking prescription painkillers. I stopped okay. any sort of illegal drugs because we have morality clauses, which I'm sure you know yeah. about. And um, so I was like, no more of that. But I had real sciatica, physical pain. I'd have anxiety. And the doctors give me Percocets, Oxycontins, and Vicodins. And look, man, for five or six years, I'm not going to lie. I'm very careful when I speak to kids, especially because it worked. You know, I, I was a networking machine. But yes, I what, what I like to say at some point, what was living to use turned out to using to live. Uh -huh. And I do not know when it turned on me. But I lost my superpower. Do you know my mom and dad? <laughs> I hit another spot. So I had sciatica. Phrasing. And after two years of chiropractor, I was told I had to have an operation on my back. Mm. And then for two years uh, after that operation and a subsequent operation, I was on morphine every day for two years. Mm. And I couldn't function without it. And I couldn't, I couldn't operate as a human without that medication. And so when you say that you were on medicated painkillers, opioid based, you had sciatica. I know what sciatica feels like. It's awful. Yep. It just drains you, doesn't it? Yep. To take away that pain so that you could operate at a high level, yep. you weren't, you weren't looking at it as saying, I'm addicted to this medication. No, you I'm were, getting it from doctors. Yeah, but you were also saying to yourself, 
I need this medication. I'm in pain. Yeah. What part of it was pain and what part of it was placebo? What part will be created? God, man, I can't believe you're telling me this stuff. It's just taking me. You're taking me on my life journey. It's different. I, I, I accept, but you're taking me on my life journey, which blows my mind. Okay, so you hear you've you you know you've gone out and you you've had the balls to say to Magic and other people, I want to be your agent. You know, yeah. they're like, right, we'll get behind you and we'll support you. And so you've got that that almost that seal of approval for a period of time. Yeah. And to to be able to function at that high level, you're having to take these performance enhancing drugs. There you go. <laughs> That's what you're taking. And it's your it's your justification so that you can operate at that level. Yep. How old were you when it came to a head? Thirty-eight. Okay, so you've gone. So you magic. You talked to at the age of 24, 25, Yeah. Yeah. And so you've gone to the age of thirty-eight, and you're still medicating all the way through, every day. Every day. And the doctor's still giving you prescription drugs. About a year and a half before I got clean, I had a call with Magic Hulk Hogan. Dennis Rodman sort of knew what was going on, but he was always busy drinking. But 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 Magic and Hulk were probably the two that really got concerned. And I had an overdose in Las Vegas. I was with Dennis uh, celebrating a big television show deal that we did with Mark Cuban on HDNet uh, called Geek to Freak. And um, that was just a terrible time. I was married at the time, and I had a terrible case of bronchitis and called the doctor at the room and he gave me a big prescription for Tussinex cough syrup, which is an opiate-based cough syrup and a hundred Vicodins, an antibiotic. And I called my then wife and coming back from the pharmacy, I think it was a CVS. And I said, do me a favor, order me three Baca Rebel and Cranberries because I'm getting ready to go out to Dennis's event at the uh, strip club. And um, I came back and down two of the drinks real quick and half the bottle of cough syrup. And man, I hit the floor in my chest felt like it was ready to explode. I'm, I'm shaking. I'm like, dear God, I don't know what the hell I just did. Don't do this. I'll never do it again. She's panicking. She calls 911. I'm sweating. They, you know, foaming out of the mouth and they put a couple of needles in my arms, the paramedics, oxygen mask in my face, EKG machine. And I woke up, uh, I never made it out then, but I woke up at like four in the morning. I walk into the bathroom and I said to myself, God, what is wrong with you? Like, you have all this. And you're and and you you almost killed yourself tonight. And um, I chopped up three Vicodins then, and I snorted them, and I finished the rest of the cough syrup, and went back into bed with my wife because to me, it was the vodka, Red Bull, and cranberry that caused the reaction. And I knew that next morning when I woke up, that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. So that next day, I got back to New Jersey. I went to see an addiction psychiatrist. He put me on Suboxone. For those who don't know, over in New York, Suboxone is an opiate blocker. If you take opiates, you won't feel it. You won't feel the mental um, effects from it. But I lied to him, too, because I was taking anxiety medications. I was taking a mood stabilizer, antidepressants, and I was snorting Ambien at night, a pain, uh, a sleeping aid. And um, that came to an end. July 1st, 2008, my late uncle, Stu, um, may he rest in peace. I lived that way for about 15, 16 months. And his then-girlfriend, Andre, came to visit my mom. And um, she never met me before. And, and she just looked at me, and something penetrated my soul. And she goes, are you okay? And I said, no, I'm not. And she goes, what's wrong? And I told her. I never met this woman before in my life. I told her everything that nobody else knew about me. 
And she's like, do you realize you're an addict and your life is unmanageable? I said, yeah. And she goes, do you realize that you're powerless? I said, yeah. And she goes, most importantly, do you realize it doesn't matter if you're from Park Avenue or Park Bench or went to Yale or jail, the disease of addiction does not discriminate. So all this, and she's pointing to photos of me, Muhammad, and Joe, and Pam, and Hulk, and all the awards and everything, it doesn't mean anything because you don't mean anything to yourself. Do you want help? And broke my soul, you know? I started to break down and cry, and I said, I'm desperate. And she's like, I'm going to put you on a 48-hour detox plan, but you got to listen to me. And I've been five years sober myself. I just celebrated. She goes into her pocket and pulls out this five-year coin. Never met her before. And um, then I'd said probably the next night, it was probably around 7 p.m., 36 hours after I started my detox, and I came back from the gym. I'm sweating. I'm dealing with all the crazy detox feelings. I pick up the phone. I start screaming at both of them. I can't do it. I'm going to call the freaking doctor to get what I really need to get. And my uncle starts yelling. It's the damn disease talking. It, it's time you, mat you, you mature. You, you freaking kick the crap out of it. You put your ego aside and get yourself to a 12-step room of recover addicts and alcoholics as they will help you. And I said, I've been to those stupid meetings. You're not going to help me. I hung up the phone, ran into the bathroom, locked the door. My then wife thought I was going to kill myself, banging on the door, hysterically crying. I'm going through the medicine cabinet, trying to find these non-narcotic anxiety pills to help me. I open up a bottle, and I think it was two Vicodins or Percocets, and which was such a relief, man, because now, now I got what I need. And um, never happened before that, and hasn't happened since. I fell to my knees, and. It was like something came over me because I screamed, I can't do this anymore. I need your help. I'm desperate. Take the money. Take the bitters. Take the notoriety. I said I need a single day of freedom. And um, people talk about white light moments. I had it because the shoulder was on fire. And you know about my deaf ear. I heard in my good ear, I've got you when you're ready. And... um. I stood up in this hand, was shaking, and for the first time, I put him in the toilet, I flushed it, I walked in the living room, and I went onto a computer to find a 12-step recovering meeting. There was no Uber then, but I remember as clear as yesterday, July 2nd, 2008, the most gorgeous night in New York City, leaving my apartment, looking up at the sky, saying, oh my God, in the back of a taxi cab, for the first time in my life, I wanted to stay sober, more than I wanted to get high. And I walked into this church basement with, 150 to 200 addicts and alcoholics who were all once of a hopeless, broke, broken state of mind. And I hear the leader say, is anybody new coming back, sick and suffering? I wasn't a religious person, you grew up Jewish, but that was the hand to God because this hand went right up. And I said, my name's Darren. I'm sick. I'm suffering. I'm an addict. I said, but why don't I kill myself for the past two years? I have so much to live for. And I need your help. And, um, I love talking about it because I, I, you know, I know there's so many people out there that didn't get that gift. And probably a dozen spiritual brothers and sisters came over to me in that moment. And they hugged me. They told me they're going to love me before I ever know how to love myself. Stick with the winners. If I want what they have, do what they do. Don't worry about if I get the program. Because if I keep coming, that the program is going to get me. And what I thought was the worst day of my life, 
Now turn it from the way very fast. Wow. Hmm. Wow. It gets me every time I talk about it. It's just unbelievable. And I made a deal with God on the floor of the bathroom. I said, if you take me out of hell, I will spend one day at a time and the rest of my life take another cell with me. Which is why the first thing I said to all you guys who are in the crew, we got to get into recovery. Because he knows for over 14 years now I've kept my promise. That part you don't identify with. Or you can. You can. Yeah. Yeah. A different, a different. Similarities, but different. Ending, but yeah. I never, I never, apart from the period of being on the morphine, yeah. I was never um, addicted to drugs. Okay. But they they say statistically about men when they get to kind of like 45 years old it's like that's the 45 to 50 is the highest chance of suicide mm -hmm. um because you get to the age and all those things that you thought you were going to be you're not and yep. all that that kind of stuff that you expected to be you're not and so you become a little bit disillusioned then you start asking what's the meaning of life and why am i here and what's it all for I've, yep. you know, it's been pointless and so yeah, I, I, my, my story is different, but it had a very, very similar part to it because I planned to kill myself. Well, it's, it's, it's fascinating to know too, because like I tell people, it's not about comparing, it's about identifying. Nobody's yeah. story is exactly, no, but if you can identify right. for anybody listening, identification is what it's about. And, and, and that's what allows people to get to that bottom and turn that bottom into a brand new beginning. And, uh, you know. so many questions here around this. So that, that worst day and the best day, knowing that there were those people around you that said, we're going to love you. You found God and he spoke to you in ways he hadn't spoken to you before. Was that because you didn't allow him to talk to you before? Is that because you felt he, he, he didn't try and enter your life? I don't know. I said this in Jay Shetty, something like, I don't know if I stopped believing in him or at some point, I didn't know if he stopped believing in me. Um, Did you have, but I knew I was given the gift of desperation in that very moment. <clears throat> and I asked for the power of choice to come back on my life. And I know most people in recovery don't get that power of choice quickly. It took me quite a while. But then once I got it, and once I realized if I'm gonna keep this gift, I better give it away to other people because I'm gonna lose my own sobriety. That's when recovery began. This is where the power comes, isn't it? When we can find a way of using that experience to guide or inspire yep. or, or to just connect with yep. other people and you say give it away get that it's you know this is this is the similarity let's say we're going out and we're dating a girl we've been dating her for a year we're in love and she cheats on you and she leaves you okay all you want to do is talk to people about why she was so mean to you 
Yeah. Yeah. So every time you get, whether it's your mum, your dad, your brother, your sister, your yeah. buddy, and whatnot, yeah, she did this, she did that, and you yeah. constantly got to verbalise yeah. this rather than just let it sit. This can't get it out, get it out, get yeah. it. It was her fault, you know. Whether it's your fault or not, doesn't matter. It's her fault, exactly. and you're just trying to get it out. And and the and the more you get it out, the more the the, the better it feels. It's like that 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 talking about it gets it out there. Yeah. You telling me the story so beautifully as you've just told me is it's almost like that's a therapy on its own, but it has two benefits. Yeah. It's it's enabling you to feel, not better, that's the wrong word, enable for you to feel comfortable sharing that, but it's also enabling other people to sit there and identify with your story and their story within your story so that hopefully they can make better decisions. Mm-hmm. This is the kicker, though. Were were we, you and I, similar age, were we able, as we were going through all of the challenges we went through, as you went through that journey, Mm -hmm. who did you ever listen to? Was there anyone along that way? Yes, you, you told me about what Magic said in business. Yeah. You clearly listened to people if, yeah. if it was going to benefit you because Magic did, and I'm sure other people did too. And you're like, yep, yep, yep. Can I pinpoint yeah. that? Was there a, a sage that was in your life before that point, before that lady, that had you decided to listen could have helped you? Or do you think that there was no one along that way? You were just living in your own world. You know, I had a handful of people that knew I was still highly functioning. Uh, but again, a lot of people were dependent on me with much more money involved now because now I'm an agent. I'm not just selling baseball cards. So they're concerned, trying to look up different doctors, make different appointments. But I needed to find it within me. I tell people, anyone listening that's got kids, moms, dads, sisters, brothers, husbands, wives, you know, contact me at agent underscore dp on instagram i have a website you know it's family members are too close they're just too close interventions sometimes work person has to find it within them you know i learned about the five a's that sunday night on july 2nd 2008 accountability attitude adjustment action and acceptance it's not pointing the fingers at anybody but yourself and the reason we call 12 step program there's hundreds of fellowships that have adapted to 12-step group and i know the recovery community is huge in london i've been to some tremendous meetings there is because we all have something the first 12 steps of recovery the only one mentions alcohol or substance in the first step every human on this planet can learn from the 12 steps if they look them up you just take that word out the first time the rest the other 11 we're all about a way of healing, accountability, working through, identifying, you know, the root cause. And um, I've had just, I've had some of those beautiful experiences in recovery, being that savior because of God. And then I've had some horrific ones where people have lost their lives. And I've had calls from you know, wives and parents that have tried getting, you know, their children or their sick and other sober. But everybody's got their own journey. Uh, and I'm at the point now, after 14 and a half years, you know, I, I like to say it like this, you know, unfortunately, this is life and death. I need to see people win and I need to see people fail and die so I can live. And as harsh as it sounds, it's because that reminds me. I just have today. 14 and a half years I put together, that's good for 14 and a half years. I got to go to bed tonight. 
I got to be of service. I have to always work on that self-esteem, and that's by doing esteemable acts. That doesn't come from a place of ego. That is finally what gave me that self-love from the inside, being of service to other people. The minute it's about Darren and what could Darren get and how's this going to help me, mm, I know I'm that close to a relapse. So spirituality is such a big part of recovery, any recovery. Again, even if people that are listening can't identify with, you know, drugs and alcohol, whatever, it, it, it's, you know, you have to find a different way to live. You know, life now is restrain a pen and tongue and text messages because you have a walk through here. You know, you guys get in an argument later with significant other, try to bite that tongue. Don't send that text. You stay in a much better mindset that way. You know? when, 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 when you were young, you made a lot of money. When you were in business, you made a lot of money. And the, what, what came with that money was obviously the trappings of material possessions. I was, I was the same. I made a load of money when I was yeah. younger. I had more money than I knew what to do with. Yeah. And I now couldn't care less about money. Same way. Yeah. It's amazing that you said that. I was at Charlie Sheen's house last Thursday as a dear friend and client. And he's doing tremendous. He's sober for many years now. He's a great dad. I love him to death. We laugh our butt off. And... We literally just had this conversation and this is the highest paid actor in the history of television and that, you know, you just get to a place, man, as you get older, when you really, I think when you understand money doesn't truly buy happiness, it buys things, it buys tentative happiness. If I lost Prince Mark in a group tomorrow, you would still be sitting in front of the same Darren Prince. It would just be heartbreaking. I'm going to be able to employ, you know, 10 people or take care of my mom or my girlfriend needs help or my sister. That's the only part part. But um, I just know I found myself and that it was always about the cars and the houses and the mansions and the jewelry. And you know, I look back and I was like, who was that guy? Like, how did I even get to that point? Yeah. I just you know, look at the you... way we're dressed right now. I yeah. could have came in in a freaking $5,000 suit if I wanted to today with the beautiful Rolex on. It's not me anymore. I don't care. <laughs> you know? We've yeah. lived it. We've done that. But it's like, I don't give a shit. Yeah. And my, my wife will say to me, my daughter's bought me this watch, yeah? It's a Garmin. <laughs> well, I go hiking. And that yeah? means more yeah. to you than if I got you a $50,000 I've, I've, I've got a box full of watches. Yeah. And my wife's like, can you put one of your nice watches on? And I was like, I'm like, why? She goes, we'll be going for dinner. And I'm like, but the girls bought me that. This tells the, and that tells the same time. That does way more than tells. It's amazing, this watch. Yeah. But it's like. It's two hundred dollars, whatever it is, but it's my favorite thing in the world. You know, I've got a car; my car's eight years old. Yeah, I can. People in there, my audience think I do well for myself and all that kind of stuff. But my car's eight years old, and my wife says to me nearly every every week, "Are you gonna get yourself a new car?" Uh. And I look at, her, I'm like, "For what?" <laughs> I'm like, it, "It's fine." She's like, "Yeah, but you say, oh, get yourself a new car now. You know, yeah. you deserve a new car." Yeah. And I'm like, "I've got a great car." Yeah. It's just so insignificant it does mean little examples you know my wife would be like if we're flying to london she's like did you buy business class tickets and i'm like we can go economy she's like yeah but we know we need to put our feet down and whatnot and i'm like it's six and a half hours <laughs> 10 years ago if you'd have said to me i've got you economy tickets I'd be yeah. like, i'm not even getting on yeah. that plane you know and so it's 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 really interesting how and and, and I, I i'm trying to i understand the connection that you and i both have with school and proving that made us need to go out and make money to prove something so that's why the names yep. you know it's like i needed to prove and the way that that could be measured 
for someone of that age going forward was in material gain exactly. to measure success. Yeah, I look now, you know, we've just finished making a documentary about human trafficking and we've spent time in Nepal with these girls that have been trafficked. We spent time in Dubai with these children from Bangladesh that are trafficked. Um, and the reward that comes from that is worth a million percent more than anything I've ever done so, in so business. You, you got it. I mean, we're, <laughs> that's exactly. I'm the same way, man. I mean, it's uh, it's such a beautiful thing to have that, to just to know that, look, I drive a Range Rover. I live in a beautiful high rise in Brentwood. Everybody's like, why, why are you going to keep wasting rent money? Buy a beautiful house for me. I don't need it. It's just me and my girl, my dog and her dog. Like, I, I don't, it, stuff doesn't do it for me. I don't need a five, $10 million home. It doesn't, I'd rather have less so I can take care of more people because not to buy people because other people look at money differently than you and I do. Yeah. So if I can give them relief and then I can use money through my aiming high foundation, which was the name of my book. I started my own foundation to scholarship people that need treatment mm -hmm. so they can get a life beyond their wildest dreams so they can get their kids back. So their mom and dad are significant other. Can get talk the person to, they always wanted. Talk to me about the foundation. It's the greatest freaking film yeah. in the world. I'll take that over a ten, twenty million dollar business deal. It's un. That's what gave me the self esteem. That's what's given me the self love. And I don't need accolades for it. I don't need one person going in the meeting and say, "Darren Prince scholarship, my my wife or my husband." And he said, I, "I don't do it for that. I do it because, like I said, I made a deal with God and." Behind the scenes, you see how emotional I get. It's the greatest freaking feeling in the world to know that a power greater myself has restored me to sanity. And now I'm able to use that power to help other people. Shit. <laughs> it's just like talking to myself. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. It's yeah. genuinely amazing. But for those of you that are watching this right now on, on YouTube, I've, I've never. I've never done an interview like this before where there are so many synergies. So much of the story is so similar. And it's nice you're getting a little emotional. It's just incredible. <laughs> I think about wanting to, I, I wanted to make a difference when I was younger, which was to prove the bullies wrong. I then wanted to make a difference to to be a winner because I was never a winner when I was young. You know, be, I wanted to be a winner. I used to be in the school rugby team because the sports teacher had the hots for my mum, mm -hmm. and my mum would bring me to rugby. So that's how I knew <laughs> I, I, I was got in the team. <laughs> I can't believe I just shared that. Anyway, yeah. um, and. But I, I was kind of like the kid that stared out the window. I wasn't interested. I yeah. was then bullied. I was okay at sports. Um, I found skiing. That was something I loved to do. But I was okay at sports. And so I never really fit in. I then got bullied. I then needed to prove these bullies wrong. Okay. I met one of the bullies when I was, uh, I had my first fancy car. Amazing. I met one of the bullies at a set of traffic lights one night. He was on a, on a scooter and I was in this fancy car. And then we looked at each other and oh, I pulled wow. over and I thanked him. I said, There's, you bought that. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, oh, I said, you bought that. And all the years you relive the stories about, I wish I'd have punched him in the face at school and all that kind of stuff. I wish I'd have thrown him out the window and all this kind of stuff. You never did, but you think you, you, think you, you wish you should have done. 
I thanked him for that. But then you you go forward and it's like that difference that you want to make that you, you no, that difference you need to make, yeah. that impact you need to have no, on others. That's the air that I breathe. People yeah. Don't realize that it's your purpose. My recovery comes before everything. I found through my pain my purpose in life. And so many people will never understand that. And most people also understand what it's truly like to actually love yourself from within. I know what my character defects are. Everybody still has them. I work on them every day. My office will tell you, my mother, my girlfriend, you know, I'm still not perfect. But, you know, again, I said it on Jay, I'm not exactly who I'm going to be. I'm not yet where I want to be, but thank you, God, I'm not the person I used to be. And I leave it at that. Do me a favor, because we're going to have to wrap this up in a little while, and I don't, I don't really want to do that, but I'm, I need to, because I know you've got somewhere yeah. to be. I'd like to learn about the foundation. Tell us all about it. So my Aiming High Foundation, when I started speaking when Aiming High came out, it, it's, I, I could tell you how big recovery must be in the UK. Uh, Aiming High became an international bestseller by the grace of God in the UK, Canada, Australia, and the US. And um, so I would go to these groups. I'd go to high schools, I'd go to colleges, charity galas I was honored at, re, uh, rehab centers, and um, talk, speaking of families, and I would just find these incredible, like, God moments that would happen if somebody had really hit a bottom in that moment. And, and, and when any sort of bottom comes into somebody's life, doesn't matter if it's food, shopping, gambling, sex, drugs, alcohol, you have that very small window. And one day I started thinking to myself, how amazing would it be if I can have a call to action where if I'm speaking at a college and I've experienced it where somebody puts their hand up and says, Mr. Prince, you said some words that I want to tell on myself. Nobody knows this, but I'm struggling myself in front of thousands of people. It is the most mind-blowing feeling that my words have that type of impact in somebody's life that I was like, I wanna take it a step further. I wanna be like a young man or young woman. When I'm done here and we're, with my presentation, I'd like you to come speak to me. Because I wanna be able to say, go to your dorm, go to your house, go to your apartment, pack your bag. Because first thing in the morning, my foundation is putting you on an airplane to send you to the treatment center to get the life that you deserve. And, you know, I donate my speaking engagement fees to it. It's, it's just been my buddy, Brandon Novak from Jackass, um, one of the stars from Jackass. I'm going to his, uh, Novak's house. He's got his two year anniversary of two facilities in Delaware on Friday. I'm going to speak and I've scholarshiped at least a half a dozen people and to see the alumni come back and these people telling me, Darren, I've got two years because of you and your foundation. It is. It's the greatest feeling in the world, the greatest freaking feeling in the world. And now they're productive members of societies. They've got their family back. They have a life behind their wildest dreams. So, you know, whatever I can do with the Aiming High Foundation, it's everything to me because um, I've seen it firsthand. I've seen it firsthand. Do you think that maybe you had to go on your journey so that you could change the lives of other people. 100%. I don't regret it at all. I mean, I'll tell you a funny story about the Suboxone that I got addicted to for 15 months. My partner, Tim, um, I was contacted six months ago because they saw an interview and this is a revolutionary Suboxone type of drug on steroids, a million times better for 15 months. It's like methadone, Suboxone. Man, it would take me 15 minutes to get out of bed, 15 minutes for this stuff to work. These guys have manufactured something that's an FDA approval now at Bridge Therapeutics, takes 10 seconds. 
10 seconds. And the biggest thing with addicts, when you have that uncomfortability, that's what makes it so challenging to cross the other side. What are the freaking odds of the thing that I struggle with the most getting off of that intermediate drug? Now something came into my life where I'm able to now introduce them to rehab centers. I'm on the board of banning treatment centers. They have 16 properties. We do everything we can to scholarship people to get them in for free if they don't have the insurance or the money. So you better believe everything I went through and all the stars and the icons and everybody around, that was just a byproduct to lead me to this. Because I've got it coming from every angle, whether it's the scholarship, whether it's treatment center, whether it's helping somebody detox, because like I said, that's the air that I breathe, man. If I can help somebody take that bottom and turn into a brand new beginning and see those lights come on in their eyes, never gets old. Never, ever will get old. It, it's been, Darren, it, it's been an, an absolute joy. It's also been a little bit painful for me, if I'm honest with you, listening to your story. But please stay in touch with me. Of course. Okay, please stay in touch with me because your, your story is so many synergies to part, parts of my life. But you, you're a really good and decent human being. And I think you should be applauded for that. Thanks for coming to join me today. Oh, my God.